Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Searcy Institute Atrium Program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on Close Reads, talking about classical pedagogy. And then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric, Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic. And then from Wes Callahan, you can choose either the Divine Comedy or the Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash atrium. Again, that's searcyinstitute.com slash atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi Wade on Classical Pedagogy, Andrew Kern on Classical Rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or Wes Callahan on The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. One more time, that link is searcyinstitute.com slash atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. Hello and welcome to Close Reads the podcast for the incurable reader. We are so glad that you have joined us for part two of Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Part two is chapters six through 10. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. And we are without our captain today, at least for a little while, David Kern, whose life is already, Heidi, quite busy in full Lord have um, mercy, that is yeah, true. <laughs> right? And when you're really, when your life is busy and full, that's when you have problems with your automobile. <laughs> of course. It's like a law of the universe. It is. Is it nature it is a law or caution? Of the universe. I don't right. know. <laughs> right. That's a good segue. So um, we're hoping that David is going to join us, but if not, his car um, is like smoking, he said, yeah. which is very different from hotboxing. It's not the same thing. It's, it's not very that someone different. is smoking in his car. It's that the car itself is smoking. That's different. Heidi, at this point, we've been doing the, the podcast long enough, like for six, seven years, that the hotboxing reference is probably a strange reference to half our leader listenership. Well, and it's before my time. It was back when was. I was a mere listener and not a <laughs> contributor. And I remember just laughing my head off while I was sweeping my floor in the kitchen about the hotboxing thing. So can you, Tim, please you a give recap? us a recap of this moment in the history, the annals, so to speak, <laughs> of close reads culture? I used to live in Eugene, Oregon, where I taught at a little college, a classics college called Gutenberg College. And one day I came down from my apartment and I looked in the parking deck for my car and it wasn't there. It was stolen. The police sent out an APB and a day or two later they found my car and I like went to the police station, got my car and I unlocked the door sat in and it smelled like the skunkiest weed ever, ever. If you know anything about Eugene, Oregon, this does not surprise this you. This is not a surprising turn. Not a surprise. Right. 
this is like for you, Heidi. This it's is very Boulder, Colorado. From Colorado Springs, but Boulder is very different from seem, yeah. right. How what a what a, what a huge difference a hundred miles might make. Okay, <laughs> so I figured out that the people who stole, I figured out from the police that apparently what often happens is some young street toughs will steal a car, my car, then a 1998 Honda Civic was famously easy to get into because you could just kind of file down a key and turn the ignition. And that's what happened. And these young street toughs, imagine like the jets and the Sofs from from that movie that everybody is screaming at me like, damn, it's this movie. What is it? What is the? It's the Jets and the Sharks from West Side the Story. The Jets and the Sharks That's from West Side what you're Story. Saying. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh huh. I'm imagining some Jets or some Sharks having like stolen my car, but they lit up and hot box, meaning they drove around with the windows in it and got kind of secondhand high, and that's what happened to my car, and it oh, smelled no. like it. That's what it smelled like. It. So there's a little refresher course in the annals of close raids. Heidi, welcome back to Their Eyes Were Watching God by yes. Zora Neale Hurston. <laughs> uh, there also used to be a lot of controversy, I remember, on the amount of small talk at the top of the episode. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's about to be brought back as well. So we're just kind of like going back in history, bringing things up. David's you not here. You just don't even know what's going to happen. Right, right. The law is the law is out of the picture, and so we're just reverting to old bad habits. Chaos, <laughs> chaos. It's total chaos. Um, chapter six through ten of Zora Neale Hurston. Last week, Heidi, I think all three of us were kind of we were we were like thought, man, this book started off great. Talked a little bit about. Zora Neale Hurston, her kind of history um, as a writer and um, some of her influences. Apparently, I found out this week that she was really influenced by Flannery O'Connor, which I had no idea. Huh. So this week, our main character is named Joni. First part of our book was about her relationship to her first husband and her grandmother, grandmother Nanny first husband, Logan, really dissatisfied with Logan. And right at the height of her dissatisfaction, along comes Joe Starks, Jody. And Jody sweeps her off her feet. She kind of hitches to his wagon and he helps found a town, Eatonton. And there's a crossroads built at Eatonton. Um, Money is being made. A store is bought. And they are living, she and Jody, really well at the beginning of chapters of chapter six. Um, but you knew it. You you predicted it, Heidi. It's not gonna go well. It can't go well. Jody is this tremendously high-powered figure. Her husband is a high-powered figure. And he treats Janie to my mind, kind of like a piece of furniture. He needed a wife. He needed a trophy wife. That's who, ja- that's who Janie is in his eyes. But you saw it coming. It wasn't going to go well. And late in the reading, I think it's chapter nine, there's a confrontation between, maybe it's in chapter eight. There's a confrontation between 
Janie and Jody, he slaps her. He pushes her out of the store after kind of prohibiting her from kind of like joining town life. And at that point, the relationship might is extremely wobbly, but Jody ends up dying. He gets some sort of a kidney disease and he dies. And by the end of this section, Janie is single again, very happy to have her life back, very happy to have her freedom back. And she's kind of a wealthy woman. And so these suitors are kind of coming around. It's not good for, it's not good for a woman to be by herself, Janie. And she's kind of like, yeah, you don't seem to mind. All these other women are by themselves. You don't seem to mind. It's just me. Cause I got money because I got the looks. So that's kind of where she is at the conclusion of the story. Um, this went exactly as you prophesied, Heidi White. You knew it was going to go in a bad way for Janie. And it did, didn't it? It did. And I, I mean, I prophesied is a strong word and it's probably <laughs> true. I am a prophet. <laughs> um, but there were, I think there were some clues in those opening chapters that, uh, that things were going to go this way. One was the reference to the mules, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought this is going to be somewhat of an exploration of that. And Janie's voicelessness um, as a young ingenue versus her ownership of her life, her agency that she displayed at the very beginning when she comes back into town in her early 40s, um, showing some like tr- a true sense of identity and selfhood and, and a which is how the book own. begins. It's exactly. how the book begins. That's and we know saying. that we're going to get mm-hmm. there. Right. We know that we're going to get there and we're kind of, but to your point, when we're with Logan in the beginning of the book, and then when we're with Joe and kind of like the second part of the book, she doesn't have a voice. Right. I think that there's, if there's such a contrast that, our novelist that Hurston sets up between the Janie at the beginning and the Janie that we meet as a 16 year old girl. Um, the Janie in her forties is much, much different than the innocent young ingenue that we meet at 16. And uh, in a novel in which the central character is representative of multiple oppressed groups, she's a woman and she's a black woman. And for her to have such an ownership and a confidence in her own voice um, and the very beginning of the novel um, you, you have to ask the question, how does she get that? How does she, right? get, there? How does yeah. she get there? And there's also, I think, a lot of evidence um, at the beginning of the novel in her conversation with Phoebe and the way she carries herself uh, that she's endured great suffering. And that's how most of us gain a voice, right? Like that's that's how most of us learn how to inhabit the world with confidence is through a journey through the valley of the shadow of death. And, and so it, it, it makes sense to me that then so much of this novel is going to be an exploration of Janie's uh, finding her voice and owning her selfhood through a journey of great suffering. And we know that she's longing for love. And so it, it does make sense to me that, that a disappointment, that disappointment and loss in that particular area would be a way for her to, to really find herself. And that seems to be the case in this section. One of the things that, I'm noticing in the book is 
we, we use the phrase finding your voice in this particular way, right? Like I use this phrase, you use this phrase and right. it means kind of, um, I think it means a couple of things. It means like you kind of have this um, ability to exert like a little bit of power in whatever the situation is. And when you're a younger person, it's really hard, especially when you're surrounded by maybe parents or teachers, you know that you lack experience, but you still have strong feelings. You still have strong convictions. And part of finding your voice is speaking despite um, not having accumulated the kind of like wisdom and experience that older people have. What I've noticed in this book is that that is exactly Janie's situation. She is trying to kind of find her voice um, and, and kind of exert herself in a situation that doesn't really seem to esteem her very much. But the other thing that's happening in this book is that we literally don't hear much from her. We hear these conversations that are happening kind of on the front porch of the store that are maybe happening in the streets. And in my mind, I wonder how you're kind of experiencing Janie as a character. I, 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 Janie is behind all of these conversations, kind of peeking into them, eavesdropping into them. But we don't, we literally don't don't hear anything from her. Is she always in the back of your mind, Heidi, as you're reading these long blocks of conversation between secondary and tertiary characters? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I can't tell in Tim, I'll be, I'll be really honest, be uh, yeah. just really candid about this. I couldn't tell in reading this section if that was a flaw or not. I had the same question. Part of I me, had the same question. Because part of me thought, that, why would I care about her if she doesn't have a voice in this section, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I kind of started to get a little bit lost in following these different things that were happening in the story that the mule, for example, which I'm sure we'll talk about in this episode because it's highly symbolic. Um, and the, the conversations on the porch, uh, even Joe was much bigger than Janie in this section. And part of me felt like, well, I'm kind of losing, I'm, I'm losing. Where is her. she? Where is she? Um, I'm losing her. And then maybe that's a flaw. In the in the maybe that's a failing, and then I thought, well, maybe that's also maybe that's the point. Maybe this is the maybe the structure of the novel is telling us that Janie herself is lost because we don't get to hear what she's thinking and feeling during this period of her life. And so I I kind of vacillate back and forth. I'm not sure I completely know where I land on that even now, but I did have that thought. Maybe this is a flaw, and then I thought, well, maybe this is personal purposeful and intentional and exactly how it needs to be for us to finally care when she does get her voice. What was your experience? It was, I mean, you were naming it exactly, exactly as I, I had this ambivalence also, and it's exactly as you described. So it might be fun right now to kind of like, let's try to make a case and make the counter case that this is not a flaw. Let's begin with, this is not a flaw. This is very intentional by Hurston, okay? And I think it'd be helpful to focus in on the mule scene. Hmm. So the, the mule scene is a secondary character. Do you remember his name, Heidi? Yes. Yeah. 
SM, go ahead. What's his name? Hold on. Walter. Yeah. Walter yeah. has mm-hmm. a Walter mule. Walter Thomas. Mm-hmm. He wants to sell it to Joe Starks. Joe Starks kind of wants to buy it, but doesn't want to spend much money on it. Ends up buying it. And and he keeps the mule. And the mule becomes, it, the mule is kind of part of town life for a little while. Then the mule dies and the town kind of holds a mock funeral away from the town, a little bit away from the town. And they hold this funeral. And by the end of the funeral, the buzzards begin to descend on the mule. Okay. What's interesting is this is the first time I think in the book that Janie is actually completely off stage. She's not kind of like looming behind the main character. She's actually off the stage. Okay. Let me try to make a case that this is, I experienced it as a problem because this is a book about Janie. It's a book about Janie. She needs to be kind of like adjacent to the characters that are talking, but she's not. So that was a little bit of a disruption for me, but let me try to make the case. Okay. The case is Janie is being blocked by Joe Starks from participating in any sort of public life other than kind of their marriage and the tending of the store. So the mule episode is an example of the entire town kind of communing together in this funeral, even though it's a mock funeral, they've kind of all gathered together and um, Janie is barred by Joe. Joe presides over this funeral. He's powerful. He's strong. He has this very clear voice. He is the man in charge, the mayor. Janie is sidelined. So that would be my positive case. And I think it fits the power dynamic of the book perfectly. Mm-hmm. Do you have, is there more that I'm leaving out, Heidi? No, I think that that's, that's a good case. I think if I were to present the other side of Please. that. Um, and again, I haven't landed one way or the other, and it doesn't sound like you have either. Um the other side of that would be one of the main jobs that you have as a novelist is to make people care about your central character, especially in a book like this that is about the internal and external unfolding narrative of the life of a central character. Mm-hmm. And so essentially you have one job and that's get people to care. So they'll right. keep reading, right? Right. <laughs> right? That's, that's your job. Um, and in this section, Janie is either silent or she is raging. Mm-hmm. And that is truthful to your point. You've made this point of this, this point about um, Cormac McCarthy, right? You tell the truth unflinchingly as a novelist. You bravely tell the truth. You don't water it down. You don't pat it. You don't make it more palatable. You just tell the truth. And so I think in making the case that this section might have a, a, a flaw in it. It's this. You either keep her silent and keep her silent silent, or you balance out that rage with something a little bit redeeming that will make your audience stick with it. Mm-hmm. But to make her both silent and rageful, I could see how a reader could then kind of lose interest and say, why would I care what happens to her? Maybe I won't read anymore. Okay. My, my problem, I, I want to say this, and then I want to come back to 
the case that you just presented, mm-hmm. that she's kind of in either one of two modes. She's either silent or she's raging. So I want to come back to that. My complaint about the book is just about this section of the book is about her proximity to the events. I have no problem. In fact, I think it kind of fits the thematic unity of the book to have her silent. What I don't understand is why she is so not in proximity to the action of the story, namely the burial of this mule. It seems to me like she kind of had to be there and just was not permitted to say a single word. That's what it seems to me like that would fit better. But I don't know. I don't know, Heidi. We're both kind of making up our mind about this. And I think even it's funny because even in giving my case, I kind of talked myself out of it because (laughs) I think it's truthful. This is how a woman kind of subjugated by a man who might very well be a narcissist Mm -hmm. is, um, which is another thing I want to talk about, by the way, but I'm going to, I don't want to get sidetracked. Yeah. Um, That her response, what is so characteristic, right, is to try to push down and try to stifle herself and, and, and in order to please him, to keep his regard um, and to kind of put herself in the place that he's trying to put her, right? And, and she vividly describes, Zora Neale Hurston vividly describes kind of this, uh, the process of Janie turning herself into two people, right? Talks about how like one day she, she saw herself as kind of like floating above uh, the situation and, um, and in seeing herself. And that's a really, really common thing for people to do when they're in relationships with abusive partners Yeah, um, is to kind of put themselves like break themselves into two pieces one piece that is what their partner wants them to be and the other piece of them is like their real life but it becomes more and more sheltered and internalized um and 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 holds then all of the rage of the of the of what they should have the freedom to show in their real life but Janie never does right yeah and so now I'm kind of thinking no what she's doing is is just telling us giving us a real glimpse into what it, what it was like for this woman, for Janie to, to be in such a stifling atmosphere. Um, and, and I think that it was pretty brave of her to make Janie, I think for a little while, she's, she's pretty tough to swallow as a character. Yeah, I think she is. So Heidi, we want to welcome David Kern to the show. And David, as we welcome you to the show, I want to give you like a little synopsis of one of the things that has frustrated Heidi about this section of the book. And please correct me if I'm wrong. What's that? And Tim. And and Tim. Tim. But no, there's one part though that actually I think bothers you (laughs) in a way that, that doesn't bother me. It's that we see Janie basically only in one of two modes in this section. Either she is silent because she has kind of been silenced or she's in a rage. I actually found this to be like absolutely real. I was like, of course totally she's in a rage, real. but totally there's something real. about it for you that doesn't that like it's, it's 
um, it's pushing you away from her character. Is that right? I think, oh man, that's such a hard thing to answer because no, the, the short answer to that is you're, you're articulating my case very well because uh-huh. we were both, we were making, David, we were making a case why kind of Janie's fading into the background in this section is either a flaw or not a flaw of the novel. Yeah. Um, and um, that was my case. That, the, that an author's main job is to make you care about a character. And if the character is either silent or raging, that doesn't necessarily motivate the audience to really love her and care about her and root for her. But I, mm-hmm. I, I did not find that repulsive. I just kind of in the back of my head was like, I wonder if I, I wonder if this is a flaw. Yeah. So and yeah, there, yeah. I wonder if we should have had yeah. more glimpse into her grief, not just her rage. And you know what I mean? Like some of these, some of these yeah. other kind of softening yeah. aspects, um, her, like her longing, her desire, like her attempts to move towards him, like some of those things. Um, I wish we'd had seen a little bit more of that. Well, first of all, hello. It's good to be here. Finally made it. How's your car? Uh, TBD. Okay. <laughs> There's just a lot going on. So it's good to be here though. And thanks for holding down the fort. Of course. Of without course. me. The yeoman's work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was thinking about, uh, I think I kind of understand where you're coming from, Heidi, because, but just to, just to clarify, Tim, you're not, you weren't bothered by that. It's funny. I wasn't bothered by it. And then Heidi articulated and I was like, <laughs> Wait a second. Maybe I am bothered by that. But no, on the first first read, I was like, it seemed very realistic to me. She's like silent. And then she gets an opportunity to actually speak. And of course, she's mad. She should be mad. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I didn't think about it in terms of her silence because of the way the point of view works in the novel. But but I, I thought about it a lot, like how people think of or like T.S. Eliot thought of Hamlet <laughs> you know there's this sense that he can he said well Shakespeare doesn't doesn't give us enough reasons he doesn't earn Hamlet's anger moments of pettiness his emotion all that kind of stuff and I think what he's saying there is not that a character that is in Hamlet's circumstance would be upset I don't. I think he's saying the dramatic action, the big overarching actions of the play, are the kind of things that people would be upset about, and respond in emotional ways. I don't think that's the complaint. People say, "Oh, well, Hamlet's dad died and is was killed by his uncle and then stole his mom and all this kind of stuff." Of course, he's upset. I don't think that's what T.S. Eliot is talking about when he says that that plays a failure. And I don't, I'm not getting into the. We don't need to get into the weeds of whether Hamlet's a failure. It's not a failure. <laughs> um, but what I think Elliot is actually saying can be helpful here. I think that in this book, what Janie experiences in the broad strokes is the kind of experience that leads people to be silenced and then less leads them to be angry. And so when she lashes out, that makes sense. I think what uh, Hurston doesn't accomplish totally for us here is giving us enough narrative scope and emotion scene by scene to make, to give us as readers an emotional core of the book. So it feels like we're being told these things that are happening and we're getting a lot of metaphors and very interesting writing, 
but we're not necessarily being invited into the day-to-day drama that she's experiencing that leads her to then feel the way that she does. And I think that's what T.S. Eliot was saying about Hamlet is sure there's this, there's this big picture thing going on here, but what's not happening is enough dramatic scene making that invites us into that big picture drama. And I think that's maybe where this book is a little limited and can leave us feel, feeling a little hmm. bit cold. Hmm. So we get, we get a couple of scenes, but then we get so many years passing and she seems to say, seems to be willing to just tell us what happened in those years and expect us to feel it because she offers us this like impressionistic prose that's full of these images and metaphors, some of which are quite mixed. And she's leaning on those metaphors and that sort of poetry to invite us into the emotion of those moments instead of giving us scene by scene, moment by moment action. So she, so basically what she's doing then is she's putting a lot of strain on those metaphors and she's putting a lot of strain on those few scenes she does give us, which we're all going to have varying mile, like those are going to have varying degrees of effect on each of us as readers. And so if those scenes or those metaphors leave us feeling cold, then we're going to look at her and feel like, okay, I get it, but I don't feel it. Does that ramble there make sense? Heidi, you're, you're muted. That makes sense to me. That makes sense I, to you, Heidi. Oh my gosh. So I think that's so insightful. And on a meta level, why I've, I like working with you guys because that is, I think David, you just, that's spot on. And you have this eye for the structural and writing technical elements of writing that I don't necessarily have or need to develop better because that I think is exactly it. But I was more responding from the point of view of my own response to the novel, if that makes sense, kind of wondering why and yeah, thinking about yeah. it more psychologically. Well, I think that's why. Yeah. I think that's why we have, because everybody, you're going to have your own individual responses. And as an author, in a sense, I'm not actually trying to be critical of Hurston here, right. but in a sense, it's your job to anticipate that your readers are going to bring their own responses to it. And so what you're doing is you put a lot of pressure on yourself and on, on individual scenes or lines if you, if you offer fewer ways for the reader to engage with your story. And so I think that's what she's doing here. She's kind of like stripping things down and not giving us a lot of space to enter into it. And so we, we can only enter into it in some narrow ways. And so that's going to, like I said, that's going to mean different things mm-hmm. to different people. And I, I don't mean that right. critically. Like, I mean, I think you, I think there is a big conversation to be had about whether that's a good idea, but you know, what she does give us is very interesting. She just doesn't give us a lot. And so, so sometimes people might say, well, it feels like maybe she hasn't earned it. And I think that's why. And I honestly think that's kind of what they mean most of the time when they talk about the idea of whether an artist, an author earns the response that they seem to want out of us. Tim, you look you like you're on the, you're on the, uh, the gate right now. You're ready to ready for that gate to open and you want to burst through that and make a quick round round one mile loop. I, I think that the section that we read six through 10, I think that the weakness of it is um, the episode with the mule in which Janie is off stage yeah. But I think yeah. actually that one of the strengths of this section is when Janie is kind of on stage but behind the action. And it's that debate between Sam Watson and Liege Moss on 
nature versus caution. Do you remember this? Yes. And is it in uh, six? The Either half six, of six or seven. Um, I thought that that, that section, I think is, it really mm. works because even though Janie is behind the action, those two keys, nature versus caution, which I think is kind of another version of, it's kind of like the nature versus nurture debate. Um, Hurston is playing those two keys in this way that's really highlighting and augmenting her theme. And my hunch is that she is going to land with nature. She's going to lean in that direction. She kind of acknowledges both sides of it, but she's going to lean in that direction because we see over and over with Janie, there's her dissatisfaction with both of her husbands, with her grandmother, is that they are all in some way squelching nature. They're, they're kind of like suffocating her. She has these desires, this desire for mm-hmm. love, this desire to be, like to have an authentic self, and it can't shine through. And so I think kind of placing her de- behind this debate, which the, the debate's really great. It's funny. Um, it's playful. It's it's linguistically. It reads like really a play. Artful. It does. It reads like a play. I think it's it's wonderful, and I think to to the conversation that we're having about Janie's point of view, we don't hear from her, but boy, we know that she's there, and I think that she's going to say, "Nature caution, yeah, nature." It's nature. It's got to be nature. That's the thing that I don't have an opportunity to explore. Is nature. And I'm curious to know, I I think we're seeing that theme be developed within the book, especially when we kind of like cut away from the plot. And Janie is kind of half dreaming, almost like in like in a mystical state, she her eye turns toward nature. And there's like a comfort there. There's a relief there. There's opportunity there. And I like how this section, the little debate, really played up that opportunity for us to explore with Janie. What would that look like for her? Mm. Yeah. And Hurston does some really interesting things with Janie's being behind the scenes of yours, as you're pointing out, Tim, that that she is on the periphery of all these conversations and things that are happening, but she's silenced, like actively silenced. This isn't like a passive kind of thing. It's actively she is told not to engage, but she's observing. Um, and and in some ways, that's a mirror of the content of the conversation they're having about nature and caution, right? Like is that's, that's, that's the whole point is, is she silenced? Because I agree with you. I think it's complicated though. I, I think that the book is kind of leaning towards this idea of nature. However, Janie by nature wants to be more involved and by nurture is being silenced and relegated to the background, right? And so there's this complex, there's this complexity to to the content of that conversation and to what's going on, I think, in her marriage and in the town itself, which the town itself is relegated right to the background. We don't see that necessarily in, like, this is an all-Black town, 
right? And and mm-hmm. and there is mm-hmm. some kind of underlying conversation, not not overt, but this underlying idea throughout the narrative that they have that they're there because they're not allowed necessarily to be somewhere else in the center of things. And so and and that I think does go to the idea or to the to the symbolism of the mule, that the mule is a that also fulfills a very complex symbolic role within the narrative um, that, you know, careful readers will, it, it opens up conversations. So anyway, I think there is so much richness and complexity in this section. It's the emotional weight that felt a little bit missing to me, but in terms yeah. of the interaction of the themes, the symbolism, the, uh, like what was going on on a literary level, all yeah. that stuff is yeah. like really rich and complex and thoughtful. I came across this quote by Henry Louis Gates Jr. I'm reluctant. I'm always reluctant to kind of lean on a literary critic, even one as you know esteemed as Gates, just because I think it's important for all of us to kind of like try to understand books in and of themselves. But um, all that being said as a preface, he said something really interesting. He says that during these long sections of dialogue between characters, that we're not really being told a story in these sections. We're actually being shown this world, the world of Edenton, Mm -hmm. you know? And... I got the impression from this quote that what we really need to be doing is sort of like immersing ourselves in this community. And it doesn't mean that Janie's story ceases to be important. It's obviously like it's the reason that we keep reading. We want to know what happens. How does she get to this place that she is in the beginning of the book? Um, but I, I, it feels like that Hurston is placing us in proximity to this world and gives us these long sections of debate and conversation. And we're meant to just sort of like sit within it for a while. And I don't know if like pressing pause on the narrative is the right response, but that's what, at Mm -hmm. least what I do. I kind of press pause on the narrative for a little while. And then when we return to Janie, I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. I wonder if this, the debate, for example, how that relates to the story that Janie is is telling us. It's such an interesting choice, though, right? Because it's pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. How come, David? It's well, it's risky for for a writer to make that choice to basically say the thing that you know we spent last time a large chunk of it talking about why Janie was a compelling character, right, and why people would return to her her and so forth. So at the beginning of the book, she, at the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> Heidi just dropped something, I guess. And David yeah. and I are like, wait, where yeah. did the noise come from? And, and Heidi noise rolls like her eyes at her face and, then, and then muted herself. And it's just like, I completely lost it. It wasn't the noise. It was more it was like her your response. Like, response. <laughs> Our doors. This is not a me problem. This is oh, a house this problem. Is a, this is a the doors oh, yeah. in our house. Like none of them are, we have an old house. It, and 
So they all slam? They all slam. Like you can't close them right now without slamming the doors. And so that was, there's a door being closed. Our screen doors at our house. Yeah. uh, Yeah. The screen doors at our house is just because we have kids. It's just one slamming noise after another all day long. Anyway. So it's, it wasn't you. It was more like, it wasn't the noise that was actually bothersome. It was it like was the way you like rolled your eyes and muted hit myself. the mute button. Um, I'm just trying to be professional, so, you know, just she's trying to mute her house. Right. Yep. <laughs> so, but it's risky because you are setting the, your reader up for a particular experience to like this character, to anticipate being along with this character on the journey. And then you not, not just, you don't just veer off onto a new character per se. You stop everything and you almost try to, you write, you start making it a different kind of book. And it is, it's almost like she's right. She starts writing, you know, a play or something like that. And uh, so, you know, that that's different than say a Lonesome Dove book where you're with one character for 40 pages and then it goes off to another character, but you know, you're confident that you're still in the same story. It's a different characters it's, or even the Lord of the Rings, right? Something's happening in a different spot, but you, you know, you're moving towards the same place. This book has that impressionistic thing about it. That's a great word. You're trying to figure out how all these colors work together and you're gonna have to spend a lot of time looking at it, but it puts a lot of strain. It, it becomes something unusual for the reader. And so it's risky for the author, going back to my original hypothesis, because you're basically asking the reader to trust you through an experience that is different than the one that you set for them in front of them in the first place. And that's sometimes difficult to stick along. I bet she loses a lot of readers at this point. And I bet she knew it's she was such a great um, comparison, David. I mean, I'm just imagining all three of us, this is our first time going through the book. We're all standing right in front of this impressionistic canvas, this Monet. And we're seeing just a portion of it, but it's largely like, streaks and colors and dashes and the process of finishing the book which we'll do in four weeks is the process of stepping back slowly but slowly and getting a picture of the entire canvas but for right now yeah our noses are up against the canvas and we're kind of wondering what does this paint streak mean why this color here and we won't know until really later the end of the book but it's a great, I just think it's a great comparison. And so I chose to highlight it and ramble and, and kind of just make it my own. <laughs> is That's jazz another, maybe, maybe jazz is another. So. Maybe jazz is another one. Yeah. In, yeah if you don't know the what Harlem the theme Renaissance. is. Yeah. 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 You don't, if you don't know what the theme is and you're just dropped in the middle, it's, it could sound, especially at particular moments like this, these are four different instruments playing four different tunes. But when you hear like the theme established early or reestablished late, oh, I know that this section is not, you know, unharmonious. I know it's not disparate. But and you can't, it's hard to see it, hard to hear it when you're up close to it like we are right now. One of the things that I was fascinated is about is that she makes this choice while also still employing the specific language and speech patterns and you know, metaphors and things like that, that the characters use in a way that like you really, you have to read it differently because she's spelling everything out phonetically. Right. And um, so she does both of those things at the same time. So she's really 
putting making you put extra effort in as a, as a reader. I just it's it's interesting that she she's taking all these chances, and that's probably one of the reasons why the book lasts. But also could be one of the reasons why, as we talked about last week, some people when it when it came out, including Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison, were like, "Come on, lady, like tell us a story." And that was what Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison were saying was like, our people need these, need stories, you know, and this is not going to accomplish that. Um, so I, I can see, like, you can, you can imagine people at the time saying this risk that you're taking don't work. Now, 75 years mm-hmm, later, mm-hmm. 80 years later, it seems like maybe they've worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. It's very dusty in this bookstore basement. <laughs> You should hire someone to take care of that. I don't think you should. You should leave it that way. A bookstore basement <laughs> should be dusty. And we uh, got the shelves to keep organizing because we get so many books dropped off and we've got boxes and boxes going to Goodwill. But that only means that I'm just increasing the ratio of dust that is off the ground and in the air. Right. As opposed I will to say settled. it's really fun to see the basement fill up over the months of recording on <laughs> Zoom video. I wish our, our readers could, our, our listeners could see this because when we first started, there was David with like an empty basement behind him. And then over the months, Except for like, the ghosts. Well, yeah, but we can't see those, you know. Right. I just um, feel them. I feel them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but now it's, you know, then there's like a couple of boxes and a stack or two. And now it's just, you know, more and more. So it's a sign yeah. of the book. Precarious. Ongoing, the stacks are getting precarious. Yes, gross. No, it's really and exciting. Found, she was at a warehouse today and she found maybe 40 copies of Easton Press books and Franklin classics, like the nice leather bound ones that she got for like 20 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's anyway, back to the other book yeah. that we're talking um, about here. By the end of this section, section 10, we hit the midpoint in the book. We've talked a lot about midpoints of books and plays on this podcast. Usually it signifies a major shift in the character's um, fortunes. They sometimes shift from trying to understand to taking action. And so I just think it's really interesting that at the end of chapter 10, we have met Tea Cake who we know from the beginning of the book is going to be a really important character in Janie's life. Also dead. And he's also he's dead. We dead. also find out that he's dead. Right. Which like, like when I, when we met tea cake in the store, when he kind of walks in, I had kind of three different thoughts. The first is, Oh man, he might even be smoother than Jody was. I mean, he's so good. Mm-hmm. He's good looking. I don't remember much being said about like how good looking Joe Starks was, but it's real clear. Like tea cakes. Got it. Joe Starks had a posture. He had a posture. I don't know and that a he voice. had a big voice is what it's yeah. described. Yeah. Tea cakes got the rest of it. And of course she sets us up for him to arrive in the previous chapter when what's his name is basically like, um, who was it? One of the guys comes up to her. Yeah, Ike, I remember who you talking Green, about. Yeah. Says, you need to be careful about who you marry, Miss Starks. These strange men run in here trying to take advantage of your condition. And uh, she's like, You're like, oh, I, shut up, man. That's you, but, bro. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But then now we know, oh, all right, one of these chapters here coming up soon. Old TK is going to show guy. up yeah, sometime right. before he dies. Is he a ghost? 
Maybe he's a ghost. He, no, he's not a ghost. <laughs> That's the, the basement the talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the ghost okay, thing. Second, ask if he's a ghost. Ask if he's a ghost. <laughs> the second Christ. thought that I had was, is, is TK going to be Joe Starks again? I mean, I think I just, at this point with Janie, I'm feeling a little protective of Janie. We don't like need another jerk. smooth operator. But... No, because we need the real deal. We do need the real deal. And there's some indications in chapter 10 that he is not just Joe Starks. He teaches her to play checkers, right? Which is treating her as an equal. And and there's a contrast there. Like one of the things that I think Hurston does masterfully, masterfully, so, so good at setting up contrasts. This, mm. not this, right? Throughout the entire novel, there's these contrasting elements of the story that are given to us as readers. As David said, anytime that you have a, a, a novelist that takes some risks and experiments with form, uh, then we, you know, the readers, we, that's a risk, right? It runs the risk of the readers not getting it. Um, but I think that for careful readers, one of the best things about her writing is this masterful ability to set up these contrasts in these really interesting ways. So we have Joe, who won't let her play checkers and tells her that a woman can't play checkers. And then we have TK, who's like, sit down, I'm going to teach you how to play checkers, right? And that, I think, right away gives us an indication that this is a man who sees her as an equal, who is actually pursuing. Excuse me, let me say that again, Logan, sorry, who is actually pursuing her um, and or beginning to right? they're kind of this is their first meeting. But I, I do think we have a couple of indications in the chapter that this is a turning point in her life for the better. OK, I have to say this. If not for the beginning of the book, I would be even more suspicion, suspicious of TK than I am. And I, your point about checkers is spot on. It's absolutely spot on. I am just feeling protective. Good of for you, Janie. and you should. I'm just feeling protective. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I have to say, this book has opened my eyes a little bit. I've never the amount of the amount of times that men in this book have told women, I mean, particularly Janie what women are capable of. I've never had anybody speak to me like that ever in my entire life. Really? Really? Like, and and I do have good men in my life, but I, I mean, hearing, reading this book, it's so on the nose. And I don't know if that's a literary thing or if that's actually the way men talked to women during this time, but it's, it's pretty heavy handed. I, I can understand why. I mean, heavy handed in terms of, what the character like the characters or in terms of the work that I guess those scenes are doing that's a good question i think i i don't mean that as a negative thing as a flaw i i guess i mean it i don't mean heavy-handed in the sense that that hurston is going too far i think that she's a subtle writer um and this section proves it right with all the experimentation that she's doing um and so i i do think it's likely that this is just actually the way men talk to women right now during this time period and that's we've made some progress if that's the case man so. no doubt so, i mean to piggyback on that heidi um i watched the apartment david's favorite movie probably a year ago and that movie is very self-consciously about kind of like the predatory nature of powerful men, especially in the life of this 
woman who works at this office. But the conversations that the men are having, even though I think it might be slightly, maybe exaggerated for the purposes of establishing the theme of the movie, you hear the conversations and it's, it's pretty appalling. Yeah. You know, it's meant to be appalling, but I think it's even more appalling because it's 50 years after the making of that movie. And I think it probably was a little bit less shocking to the ear 50 years ago when that movie came out. Yeah. 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 Every once in a while, um, I get on my high horse about, am I going <laughs> to, I think that for all it? of our problems, for all of our problems, like cultural, political, spiritual problems, and we have many, we are in such a good spot compared to where we were 50 years ago. We are in such a good spot compared to we were where we were 100 years ago. And I want to be thankful for those things, like genuinely thankful. And like scenes like the one that we're talking about are just really good reminders. Other than like the French wife, Revolution. You don't want your daughter. You don't want... What's that? Said, other than the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, things are much better. <laughs> well, like those were high points of <laughs> civilization. No, no, no. I'm saying the French Revolution. No, no, no. no. I'm saying the opposite. Of the, I'm saying the low that. points were much better, except, oh, oh, except oh, that those oh, things oh, happened. Oh. Yeah. I was like, walk me through <laughs> the guillotining of like thousands of aristocrats. You know, other but, than the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, things World are amazing. Yeah. 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 Yep. No, the I'm pandemic. Just, but I agree with yeah. you completely. And I do think that, and I'm saying that as like, I'm allowed to say that, right? Cause I am a woman. I've never been talked to like this. And um, so I think that it are treated like this um, with maybe some minor exceptions that were easy to escape from. Right. And I know that's not everybody's experience in the world. I understand that. I understand. I am also speaking from a place of privilege, but I, I do think that, what this this novel has uh it it's done what a novel ought to do which is open my eyes to a time and a place and a culture and an experience that's not my own and given me a bigger experience of the world through that right um and and that that's a good thing to have happen i think that's great and i do think you're right we have made some progress from that being the general culture to where we are now in which that's a little bit more of an exception, but mm -hmm. this, um, I, I also want to say really quickly that the conversation between, um, Janie and Joe on his deathbed, I yeah. fully, I, that I think was such a powerful, um, I think she wrote that perfectly uh, to me mm -hmm. that did have mm -hmm. the emotional weight that I was hoping for a little more. Like I was really invested in that. I think she wrote that beautifully. And that conversation was really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. There was one part there that I didn't, I thought I wrote some question marks in the margin and it was where after the conversation, basically before she says, come here, people, Jody is dead. My husband has gone from me. Like in that paragraph it says, um, she was full of pity for the first time in years. Jody had been hard on her and others, but life had mishandled him too. Poor Joe. <clears throat> and I, I, I found myself kind of feeling like, well, how, like, how had Joe been mishandled? Yeah. And, and it feels like it's, I think this is one of the things that I have a hard time with that goes into that impressionistic thing is that, is that question of like, she says things like that 
but she didn't give us a lot of action, a lot of narratives juice to, for us to be like, yeah, totally agree. I feel the empathy or the sympathy or whichever word you here because of um, like for this character who we spent all this time, like not liking. And then all of a sudden Jody has this turn. Uh, sorry. Janie has this turn and she's like, Oh, I feel sorry for him too. But as readers, we're like, well, that's nice of you to, to be magnanimous in this moment, but have, but we you, didn't see I that with Joe. Yeah. Where, do, where yeah. am I? Why do, why am I supposed to feel that? Um, and that's, I think one of the things that I've I had a hard time with in this section where th- again, we're getting these moments, but we're not seeing this picture to help us feel what it seems like she wants us to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the writing is great. The moments are great. The scenes are great. You know, like, like you said, like there's this, you know, they would make great scenes in an amazing play, right? Like the dialogue in these scenes that you guys are talking about, but that's, that's the frustration that I'm having is I'm just not able to like, I'm told this, but I don't instinctively go. Yeah. I've seen that. So I've seen that and you are right to feel that way. Like it's honorable that you feel that way. Right. What do you, do you think Joe is a villain? No. Go on. You don't think so, David. <sighs> um, don't you ask, what does it mean to be a villain? Don't you do it. Don't you do it. <laughs> oh, now I got to do it. I got to do it now. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Um, you said no right away, but you said it diffidently. Oh, <laughs> No, um, it's me. No, I don't. The question mark is with me, not with you. You have to actually answer. <laughs> I'm saying, did I say it differently? <laughs> um, I don't. No, I don't think he's a villain. I don't think he's enough of a character to be a villain. It's a tough question. I mean, I kind of. You could kind of say, well, what do we mean by a villain? He has like. Don't he's kind of a. He's kind of a like. Not a. He he's like the Bible salesman in. Good Flannery people. O'Connor. That's funny because David wasn't here when we go. talked about Flannery O'Connor as an influence on Zora Neale Hurston. Oh, so. yeah. Yep. Well, I don't, but I don't. Okay, I, hold on, hold on. I think we we can't go too far off script because not everybody has read, was it um, Why Do the Heathen Rage? Which book, which story is that? Anyway, good country the people, Bible right? salesman good country is people. an absolute yeah. villain. Good country people. He's an absolute villain. I mean, he's a huckster. Yeah, but I, he's also a bad guy. Is that the same thing? Huckster and bad guy. They're not synonyms, but they're in the same tree of Villain and bad guy. Oh, aren't they? Come on, let's not get Jesuitical here. Come on. It's close reads, man. Why not? (laughs) I I was about to say the same thing. It's close reads. We don't do that. (laughs) Well, okay. You guys both seem like you definitely think he's a villain. I I don't know. I I just don't think. What's the difference between him and the first guy? Right. He's just more clever. Well, because this is my this is my point. I'm wondering if he's a little more nuanced than we even know, because in asking, is Joe a villain? There's I just think there's some people who are going to have a really I mean, this is this is pure conjecture at my point. I haven't like tested like, this. Yes, but it obviously. seems like there's going to be some people who, yes, he's a narcissist. He's evil. He's subjugated her. He's representative of this oppressive uh, kind of culture towards women. Right. Like, I agree and, with all those things. Right. And then he's on the representative hand, of a lot of things, which is kind of my. On the other thing. hand, there might be people who are like, 
no, like he's hurt. And so he's hurt her, which goes to your point of what evidence do we have that he, that you know, where, right. Like his liver stopped working? Is that, this like, to me, that's what it feels like at the end. She's like, well, his liver stopped working. So our kidneys or whatever it was. So is he a cipher or is he like a robust character in the novel? Um, but for some reason, I don't see him as a villain, which to me communicates I that there's more there's there's more nuance in his portrayal that I, that I can't quite put my finger on. He doesn't feel to me like a cipher. He does feel like a real person. He feels like a real person to me also. I also don't think that he's a villain. And it's hard to say that because he hits Janie and shoves her out of the store during the one moment that she actually like speaks up so it, it well he's a bad guy, i say that he's, he's a villain of the book that's i think maybe the question we're asking like, we all agree that he's a bad guy maybe let me put forward this we probably all agree he's not the villain of the book it does seem like he's kind of an instantiation of a kind of cultural attitude mm-hmm. yeah that it's okay for him to treat Janie this way. I think part of the reason I'm having a hard time calling him a villain is because there are so many things that are really admirable about him. I mean, he comes in and he makes a town. He makes a town. It's remarkable. Right. right. You know? And like, especially in that part of the world at that time, what he accomplishes is really remarkable. I do think he treats Janie really badly. And I don't want to just say, eh, it was just the time, you know, I, I don't want to act like he doesn't have responsibility. He does. But I think that it's a little bit softened because my hunch is that the book is more about Janie escaping broader expectations, broader kind of cultural. Yeah. Instantiations. Um, instantiations. It's not just about her escaping two men. Logan and Joe Starks. It's, I think it's bigger than that. I think that yeah. she is kind of like coming into a revelation of herself and that revelation of herself is in contradistinction with this broader kind of cultural vision of what a woman is supposed to be, what a black woman is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right. I, yeah. I think that, I think you're onto something with that. I think that we get some small indications that maybe could have been further explored more overtly in the novel um, that there's more to Joe than, than Janie Mm -hmm. even sees, right? For example, on his deathbed, he tells her all I ever wanted was your, what does the way? Wow, man, I should have it before I start quoting things. I should have it right in front of me. Um, Hold on. So she she says the things that she says to him are absolutely true. Everything she says to him as he's dying is true. You've only ever seen me in relation to yourself. Everything you've given me has actually been to serve you, not me. And mm. that you d- you've never seen me as a true person. All of that's 
the the text completely right. tells us that she's right. right about that, right? Which you could say as a, as a therapist, my my obvious question about Joe is: is he a true narcissist, or has he been conditioned within this culture to be instantiated to treat her like this? But it's not necessarily a like core aspect of his being the way it would be for a true narcissist. Um, so I just found that an interesting kind of psychological study for me as I was reading. I kept trying to figure it out. Um, so can I say this back to you, yeah. Heidi, to see if I understand? If you were a therapist and you kind of had this experience of Joe that we get in the book, the question for you would be, um, Joe, do you kind of believe your treatment of Janie? Do you believe it in your soul as an individual person who's kind of like has no concept of human life outside of your own tiny nutshell psyche. In which case, you're a narcissist. The other possibility is, Joe, the way that you treat Janie is just sort of like you're acting out of your own pain and out of kind of like a cultural momentum that permits you to treat Janie this way. And in that case, your actions can be the exact same, but the kind of, um, the diagnosis that you are a narcissist, no, actually you're probably not. You've right. just got a you're, lot of Yes, you're a dysfunctional obstacles. person, yeah. but not a pathological person. That's the difference between. Yeah. In, yeah. In, in That's really helpful. Psychological language. Thank you for saying that back. That was good. And I lean towards, I lean towards, I mean, settled completely and our listeners can certainly push back on this and convince me otherwise, but I lean towards he's not a true narcissist. He is someone acting out of pain and um, a representation of kind of the brokenness of the culture that he represents, right? Um, and some of that, I, I'm reading between the lines here, but there's some direct allusion to that on page 85 when she says she's talking to him. Um, he accuses her of having no sympathy. And she says, it wasn't because I didn't have no sympathy. I, I had, I had a lavish of that. I just never got no chance to use none of it. You wouldn't let me. And then he says, that's right. Blame everything on me. I wouldn't let you show no feeling when Janie, that's all I ever wanted or desired. And now you come blaming me like that. He, what he seems to be saying here is that she also has contributed with her own hardness of heart to his inability to love her. Right. And I don't know. He seems to be saying, I wanted that sympathy. I wanted that tenderness mm. from you. And I never knew how to draw it out of you. And then they've been blaming each other. And, and then in also, the next chapter, she's going to blame her grandmother. Right. And then it turns out that's exactly what I was saying. This is what I was saying about like, she's either silent or raging in this section, which is completely understandable, but we don't have to think the question then comes, do we have to take her word for everything? Right. Is there a little bit of an unreliable narrator about her and that she only sees Joe in black and white terms because she's been suffered so much in her marriage. And also with nanny, is it that she kind of can't see nanny's true desire to love and protect her because she suffered so much as a result of Nanny's choices. Is there any evidence within the text that some of these judgments that are being made on the characters are coming from Janie? 
Heidi, I like my eyes just opened. I, I think you're exactly right because we do have these moments where Joe, we are kind of like close enough with Joe that we see him wanting to be wanting to offer her compliments. Remember what section was that? Yes. Um, he has like these really strong feelings for her. He does not know how to articulate it or he can't overcome the obstacle to articulate it. Janie doesn't know that. Right. Mm-hmm. But we know that. And we're like, Oh, Joe, just say it, just say it to her, right. you know? And this isn't to, um, we also know that he bought the mule because he overheard her having compassion yes, on the mule. That's the right? other instance. The, yes. the thing is though, is that this is why it's so complicated because in no way, and I know this is not, I, I just want to say for our listeners sake, in no way is having a little bit of compassion on Joe, excusing his abuse of Janie. That's all right. wrong. He is abusive to her and he has silenced her. And in their marriage, he is, I think, the main source of the, the drift between them. What I am saying is that there might be some evidence from the text that there's more to the story than Janie is seeing, which is why we aren't seeing all of it. And, Bingo. And so I do think that him buying the mule. Now, what happened when he, this is complicated though, because what happened when he bought the mule is that then he turned it around to make himself look magnanimous and in so doing ended up silencing her more, right? And that's what she says. You're obsessed. You worship the work of your own hands, right? She says she accuses him of that, I think, three times and internally in a conversation with Phoebe and to his face on his deathbed. And that's true. He does. He does do that. Um, And we're left, I think, with the question of why. Is it because he's a narcissist who can only worship himself? Or is it because he also is a product of the culture and is then repeating Mm -hmm. these broken patterns from one generation to the next and in his marriage? That was awesome. Thanks. It's a real question. I was left at the end of it. Like, Mm -hmm. huh, Mm -hmm. I wonder, dot, dot, dot. And anytime in a novel you do that, I think it's good. Um, David, since I opened the show, I'm going to now commence to move us toward the close. I was going to say, we should probably wrap this up here because I've been on for 50 minutes and you guys were already on before that. Yeah. And so probably whoever opened it should definitely make it, it, you know, So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you guys in a second, what we should look for, what you guys are looking for in the next section. And I'm going to begin and I'm going to totally steal Heidi's what Heidi just said. I want to know if part of this kind of flowering of Janie that we are expecting to see, because we've seen a glimpse of it at the beginning of the book, if, any of that flowering is going to be Janie kind of saying, you know what? I did not, I I have a part in why Joe himself felt flummoxed around me, you know, or if that's not part of where Janie's going to go, if that's not part of her coming to kind of like self-understanding and flourishing, Hmm. I'm going to be curious about that. Um, Heidi, okay. what are you going to look for in the next section of the book? I mean, that probably, uh, I'm probably just going to say in a different way, what you just said, which is further now, now that, now that Janie has endured 
this great crisis in her life. Her husband, not just the death of her husband, but her marriage is a crisis, right? And um, and now that she's free of that, she's going to, this is a very liminal stage in her life, right? The old thing is gone, but the new thing has not yet begun. And so what I'm looking, and, and liminal parts of our life are always the most important parts of our life, right? Because even though we feel the most lost in them, that's when we make choices that carry us into the next phase and, and where they become solidified. And so I am looking for further development. Um, I think that her relationship with tea cake is going to be different from Joe and from Logan. I think that the indications are, maybe I'm wrong, indications are that it's going to be more equal. However, being overlooked and abused and um, dismissed is not the only way to suffer in a marriage, right? And so I am going to be looking for, for um, also for further, maybe different, a different kind of weight of suffering within this new relationship. I'm expecting that because this is, after all, there's still half of the novel left. And what is a novel without suffering? A melodrama. David, what are you going to be looking for? (laughs) Well, I think you guys both hit the nail on the proverbial head. Uh, But I want to see how she does expand on some of the impressionistic, jazzy prose flourishes that she's been bringing up. You know, the ship metaphor and all those things that she keeps coming back to and that she keeps mixing with other things. So I want to see how she expands and uh, develops and uses and maybe even resolves some of those prose themes, uh, variations throughout the rest of the novel. We know what to look for. We want to thank you, close readers, for joining us for part two of Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Join us next week for part three. We will read chapters 11 through 17. Uh, as always, please find us on the Close Reads discussion page. It's always lively, and it's only getting livelier. We'd love to meet you there. Um, if you're new to the show, please introduce yourself there. We'd like to reach out and say hello to our listeners. So without further ado, thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week for part three. And as always, happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.